This teaching comes to you from the team at St. Mark's, Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Um, our first reading today is taken from 2 Samuel, chapter 9, verses 1 to 13. David asked, Is there still anyone left at the house of Saul who I may show kindness to Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and he was summoned to David. The king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, At your service. The king said, Is there anyone remaining of the house of Saul to whom I may show kindness of God? Ziba said to the king, There remains a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? Ziba said to the king, He is in the house of Macha, son of Amil of Lodibah. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amil, and Lodibah. Mephushosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and did ob- obeys. David said, Mephushosheth. He answered, I am your servant. David said to him, Do not be afraid, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather's soul, and you yourself shall eat at my table always. He did obeyance and said, What is your servant that you should look up upon a dead dog such as I? Then the king summoned Saul's servant, Ziba, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to his house I give to you, your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall to this land for him and shall bring, to the, bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food to eat, which your master's grandson, Mephushosheth, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servants, so your servants shall do. Mephushosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephushosheth had a young son named Micah, and all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephushosheth's servants. Mephushosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he always ate at the king's table. Now he was lame in both feet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Second reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 20. Then Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country, and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's higher hands have bread enough and to spare, but here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Treat me like one of your higher hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Hear the word of the Lord. 
Welcome everyone. Please, I'll just pray. Lord, we pray, please open up our hearts and minds so that your spirit may enter in and we may gain a true and sure understanding of the hope that you give to us. Amen. Well, friends, have you ever fallen from grace? Have you ever done something that's caused others to give you the cold shoulder to be so they exclude you from some special event? Or have you ever faced being cancelled? Maybe you've spoken the truth when others have chosen to keep quiet or you've offended the wrong person. Generally, along comes an uh, an occasion when you expect an invitation, but it's just not forthcoming. Instead, there's just that painful silence of rejection. Recently, such a fall from grace happened to me within our local community. One day, somebody asked me what I thought about the vaccination. And I, perhaps rather bluntly and somewhat naively, said that I thought it was a good thing to do. And then I knowingly listed off what I believed to be all the valid reasons, you know, like not getting sick so that you end up in an ICU, trying to protect others so that uh, who we're in close contact with from getting sick. And the Cambodian government, where we work, we live in Phnom Penh, had recently begun issuing these vaccine cards. So it was evident that those who were not vaccinated would be restricted in their movements. Well, evidently, in my inept blundering, I had said the wrong thing. Apparently, I had offended the self-appointed social gatekeeper of our community. And soon the invitations to key social events just stopped coming to our door. And I have to confess, it hurt a bit. But a few months later, I consoled myself because at least our family could go to restaurants and shops. And I even offered to pick up some items for those who were barred from entry for lack of a vaccine card. But um, that offer didn't always go down so well. Well, that was a small misfortune and I've since recovered But in today's sermon, I want to show you um, a man that the Bible portrays as experiencing a much more dramatic fall from grace. And this was Israel's first king. He was an impressive young man. He was without equal in the land, standing a head taller than any other man. And like so many tall people, he didn't like... He uh, didn't like standing out from the crowd. See, Saul, which was his name, he had a good reason for fleeing the limelight of public attention because he was ashamed of his family's status in Israel. For Saul was from what he believed to be the least of the clans of the tribe of Benjamin. And so when Israel searched for Saul to make him king, Saul, God's anointed, hid himself away. And if we were to study the book of Judges, we'd pick up that there's a good reason for the shame that this particular tribe bore. Because near the end of Judges, the men of uh, the tribe of Benjamin did a most terrible deed which resulted in a civil war with the other tribes. And in this war, all of Benjamin's fighting men, along with the towns, were put to the sword. And afterwards, the people of Israel took an oath and they said, not one of us will give his daughter in marriage to a Benjamite. And now we come along, it's a few generations later, and Saul still bears the shame of the tribe of Benjamin. 
And so when the Lord's prophet Samuel goes to crown Saul over all the 12 tribes, they find Saul hiding away amongst the baggage. So here we have this image of a tall man crouching down and it's just really not a very impressive start for Israel's first king. From there it can only be uphill and it is for quite a while. For Saul was a popular king. However, the second half of his reign is marked by a long decline into fear and introspection because Saul fears the inevitable rise of David, God's chosen one, and eventually Saul is soundly defeated by Israel's mortal enemies, the Philistines, and he and his three sons escape a painful death at the hands of the Philistines by falling on their own swords, and the Philistines leave Saul's mutilated corpse hanging on the town wall to be pecked by the crows. Now, if you were a Cambodian and you're walking past that site, you'd be shaking your head and you'd be saying, Grovi Gabal, Grovi Gabal. So, Paul, Saul, who commenced living a life marked by shame, receives the honour of kingship and then he again returns to a state of shame to be despised by all who walk past. Grovi Gabal, Grovi Gabal. Now, Normally, when a king is usurped by another, the new king searches far and wide for the surviving members of the old royal family because the new king and his supporters, they want to purge them to ensure there's no one left to bear the old king's name and thereby preventing any further insurrection. But when David becomes king, he fails to follow tradition. Instead, he seeks for an opportunity to bless the remainder of Saul's family. And they found a, found a servant of Saul's household who reveals that there remains a son of Jonathan. However, the surviving son, he is a cripple. He's not only crippled, but he's cursed with a difficult name to pronounce, Mephibosheth. Perhaps for this reason alone, there's not many sermons preached on Mephibosheth. But when David's men come knocking on Mephibosheth's door, he must have thought his executioners were coming to carry out their duty and so cement the king's reign throughout Israel. And if Saul bore the shame of being a member of the tribe of Benjamin, his grandson Mephibosheth bore so much more. For not only is he two of the despised tribe of Benjamin, but he's a member of the family of a vanquished king. And furthermore, he's a cripple. He, bore, he was lame in both feet, and when he, he was fleeing at this news of Saul's death, he fell down, crippling himself for life. And in most ancient societies, a physical handicap like this would have been his identity. He would have been known as Mephibosheth the cripple. And this identity was a sign of social stigma, a cause for exclusion from polite society. Moreover, on account of being crippled, he would have been excluded from the important religious temple, religious festivals and sacrifices at the temple. His disfigurement would have been considered a contamination, not suitable for the presence of the Lord. But on the other hand, David's star continues to rise and rise. Chapter 5, as new king, David is respected and feared by all Israel, not just in Judah, his own tribe, but in all the other tribes as well. Chapter 6, David brings the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. In so doing, he formally restores God's presence in Israel. Chapter 7, 
Through the words of the prophet Nathan, the Lord establishes an eternal covenant with David's family. They will not face the ignominious fate of his predecessor. Chapter 8, David enjoys a great military success and so establishes government throughout the land. Now there is peace in the promised land for the first time in 400 years. And now at the very pinnacle of his royal grandeur, David invites the handicapped grandson of his former arch-rival into the palace. Poor young Mephibosheth. Must have been stammering and shake, stammering away and shaking all over. He very probably thought he was being the guest of honour at his own execution. He hobbles into the great king's presence. The young man prostrates himself on the ground and he pleads, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? See, in many countries, dogs are not the pampered pets that we get for our company during isolation. They are dirty scavengers. Where we live in Cambodia, there is a family who lives right near us with uh, some strong military connections. And they, they live right on our street and their dog just never ceases barking. And I've called that dog all sorts of unrepeatable names and I've mentally stoked the barbecue to hasten its demise. Well, the self-declared label of dead dog reveals Mephibosheth is all too keenly aware of his lowly and despised status. He cannot erase the shame of Saul's family name. But David surprises us. Instead of displaying the wrath of a new king and vengeance upon this lowly remnant, he goes out of his way to bring about a drastic reversal of Mephibosheth's status. See, normally the usurping king would seize the assets of the former king and give them to reward his his, uh, family and loyal supporters. And Saul has ruled for 40 years, so there would be considerable wealth at stake. But David transfers all of Saul's possessions to Mephibosheth. David then instructs Ziba, Saul's head servant, and his 15 sons and 20 servants to cultivate the ancestral lands so now Mephibosheth will have plenty to eat. And with all this wealth and servants at his disposal, now Mephibosheth can lead a dignified life. And more significantly, David says, Mephibosheth shall always eat at my table. He will go from munching on bread and beans in his shack to dining on lamb shanks, nibbling fine cakes and sipping among fine wine among the royal company at the king's table. From now on, Mephibosheth the cripple will command respect. We can clearly see this royal invitation brings about a dramatic reversal of status that matches only that by David himself who went from lowly shepherd, the despised youngest son of Jesse, to being Israel's most successful king. Friends, here we see God's honoured one acts on behalf of the shamed. The grace that David shows Mephibosheth mirrors the very nature of the grace that God shows towards his people. We see that the grace of God being demonstrated throughout the Bible, even though Israel fall into idolatry and other sin time and time again, God continues to welcome them back into his divine care and protection. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, 
Christ died for us. And since we have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be justified by God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more have we been reconciled? Having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Now, I might not be a regular member of St. Mark's, but looking around here and looking at you lot, I can see you are generally well-dressed, politely spoken, and you have excellent manners. I am sure many of you are concerned for your reputation and you're naturally concerned for what other people think about you and that is a good thing. We should be. Some of you have been coming here for some time. Maybe you consider your family to be the stalwarts of St Mark's, Darling Point. Some of you might be connected to some of the plaques around here on the walls. Proof of the legacy of the support that your family has given to St Mark's and the fine work that carries on here. Many of you have willingly taken on positions of service and responsibility so a church like this can function as it ought. Maybe you sit on committees, perhaps you're even on a missionary committee or leading a Bible study group. You sit on the parish council. You undertake your duties in a serious manner as you should. Clearly you're a valued member of the community. Others of you might be newer to this community. Maybe you've just walked in today. Maybe this is your first day here. And you're, possibly you're thinking, first impressions are important. Are people judging me for my clothes, for my accent? Do I have the right connections? What sort of career is more respectable in a place like this? Are my children going to the right schools? Do they have the right career path mapped out? Maybe medicine or law? I don't think engineering would be, a, would be a, the right sort of career for in a place like this. I was an engineer. Um, I know some of you use social media, and because you're connected with me as we're friends, doubtlessly you've uh, given your profile some thought. Well, I have. We can't help avoiding it. How can we project the image that will manipulate the Facebook algorithm or that of Instagram, TikTok, or Snapchat, if you're a bit younger than us, in order to draw more people to my profile. How can I be liked? How can I avoid being unfriended? See, you are concerned not to bring your name, the name of your family, into ill repute. And if your family have done something wrong, better to discreetly cover it up. We can hide many things. We can hide things from the majority of most of the people most of the time. When we come to church, people only see the outside of us, probably the best side, and perhaps that's a good thing. I don't think I want others to see what I'm thinking. Now, maybe you're a fan of Ozark. Currently, this is showing on Netflix. I'm not advocating you sign up for Netflix. It's such a great time waster. But Ozark is a series about a nefarious family called the Bird Family. And this family moves from Chicago to uh, a place in rural America called the Ozarks, a location of fantastic scenery filled with poor white people who've failed in modern life. And they generally live on the wrong side of the law. 
And the main character, one Marty Bird, he's a, a brilliant financial advisor. But through freak circumstances, he's forced to move his family to this place and launder money for a Mexican drug cartel. So in order to wash the drug money clean, he goes about buying local businesses, including a, a, a clubs and a riverboat casino and injecting the illicit funds. And one of his first moves is to buy the town crematorium, which proves handy because in the second episode, some, every second episode, somebody's murdered and there's a body to be disposed of. But now here we are, we're in series four now, the second half's just about to come out, um, and, we're, and the two bird children, they are deeply involved in illegal activities. The 17-year-old daughter is a loyal supporter of the bird family money laundering business, and the 14-year-old son, well, he's broken out on his own. He sets up accounts for a rival group to manage their, their own drug-dealing profits. Clearly, a family like this have plenty to hide. But the mother, Wendy Bird, is very, is very determined to improve the standing of the family name. So in season four, she's busily occupied with setting up a charitable trust funded by the, uh, the funds from selling of heroin. And this trust is called the Bird Family Foundation. It will use $150 million of drug money to set up treatment centres for drug addicts an ongoing memorial for her late brother, who allegedly struggled in life with drug use, but actually he's just another one of the family murder victims. Well, if there's a moral to this series, it is it doesn't matter what you try to do to improve your reputation. Somebody will see through your story and will expose you for who you really are. The plot becomes complex because of the incredible lengths the characters like Wendy will go to cover up their crimes and protect their family name. They might fear for their lives, for what they truly fear is being publicly shamed, having their reputation shredded, their future ruined. Friends, we might be able to hide our thoughts and even our more regrettable deeds from those around us. But when we come before God on the final day, He will see everything and he will know everything. He doesn't just see our actions, but he sees our hidden motivations and he sees our very random thoughts. Now, for the, for the past 20 years, we've been living in up Cambodia, a place that calls itself the Kingdom of Wonder, probably because we're always left wondering what they're going to do next. It's a place rife with corruption, and the higher you go, the thicker it gets. Now, for the first decade we were there, dealing with any government authority was a nightmare. When we wanted to get our personal freight out of uh, customs, have our telephone connected to our house in the days when you used to connect them, or pay a traffic fine, we found ourselves being scrutinised by local officials wanting to see what we were worth. Was there a look of desperation or urgency on our face? Then a suitable fee would be suggested to expedite the process. However, there is one thing a corrupt person fears above all else, having an honest work colleague. You see, an honest person is in a position to expose the corrupt. So the corrupt officials ensure that everyone around them is equally corrupted so that they and their rotten system will be hidden from scrutiny. But we cannot escape the scrutiny of our maker and judge. 
For the Bible declares that God is truly righteous. He sees both our thoughts and our actions, and he knows all our shortcomings. God is characterized by his complete righteousness. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. And Jesus instructed us to aim at this righteousness, for this is the standard that we will be judged by. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things, food, drink, clothes, they will be given to you as well. However, from the time of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, and this is from the time of our very conception, all of us have sin in our hearts, and we've all acted from our sinful desires. Adam and Eve, they tried to cover up their shame by pathetically tying fig leaves together and hiding themselves from the all-seeing God. A futile and hopeless act. But when we look at God's perfect love, as displayed on the cross of Christ, we see that when Jesus died, God willingly gave up all status and honour to the point of ignominy, to be shamed by being displayed naked on the executioner's wooden stake for all those passing by, and they would have been shaking their heads. Grovigabal, grovigabal. Who is this that he cannot even save himself? Friends, when we stand before God, the righteous judge, on the last day, we are hopeless cases. For our inauthentic, sinful lives is exposed for all to see, but Jesus, the King of this world, fills us with hope because he bore our shame that we might live, that we might be restored to his community so that we might dine sumptuously at his royal table. Our only hope, for removing the shame of sin and restoring our honour comes from God. He is the one seated on high. He is the one looking over the universe that he created by his divine word. In the person of Jesus, he came down to us, lived amongst us and sacrificed his life for us. He is the one royal king who can lift us up from our shame, provide us with a new identity, an identity that is in him, we are in Christ and we are his people. And when we accept Christ into our lives, when we submit to his lordship, we have the assurance that we shall sit at the king's table every day for eternity. And this, my friends, this is the good news that we bring to Cambodia and that we have ourselves. Let's pray. Dear Lord God, we pray, Lord, we pray for ourselves. Lord, we pray that we might know our sinful and shameful state before the all-seeing and all-knowing God. Lord, let us know that each one of us here stand before you as a person who, is, who is, uh, has been revealed. Lord, we pray for people of other lands. We pray for the land of Cambodia and its people. We pray for the people of Asia and all those places where your holy name is not known, where your gospel remains a mystery. Lord, show us how we can bring the news of your great restoration through the cross so that others might be welcomed out of shame, out of darkness, into the glory and light of your kingdom. Lord, we give thanks that you sent your son to bear our shame. Now, Lord, give us hope. 
Give us a vision of the future that we might be seated at the king's table in heaven enjoying your presence and fellowship for all ages. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.